How's everybody doing? Good. Well, it's it's been uh, it's been hard to to be away. Uh, I was on vacation and some different things, and so it's good to be back. Um, I heard while I was gone that both Terry and Josh threw me under the bus. Is that true? Okay, they forget that I get to speak more than they do. I always am going to have the last word. You don't do that, but because I'm such a humble man, I'm not going to say another word. So, well, here's what we've been doing. We've been looking at the book of Ecclesiastes, and so if you're if you're new here and you you've uh, uh, you haven't been around, we've been studying that book for the last few weeks. Chris started us off at the beginning of July. And we've been looking at a guy, Solomon. Now, what was interesting is while I was on vacation, I was able to do a little bit of golfing, and I went out one morning with a guy that the, the, the guy that was at the register, you know, and I'm signing up, he's like, oh, you get to golf, and I'm not going to say his name. You get to golf with so-and-so. And I, I'd heard the name before. He's, he's a, kind of a famous athlete and actor from the 60s and 70s and kind of early 80s, and He's looking at me like, do you realize who you get to golf with? And I'm like, oh, great. Now just one more person more famous than, that knows I play golf badly. But so we go out, and I'm thinking, this guy probably doesn't want to talk about himself. He probably just wants to go golf together. So we went out, and I thought, you know, we'll talk life, different things. And the saddest thing happened while I was out with him. Everything that we've been learning in the book of Ecclesiastes about this idea of even in wisdom pursuing the ends of things and realizing that even that we come to the end of it and it's just Habel. His whole life now is about what happened in the past, the glory days. He kind of still is wearing his letterman's jacket in a weird way. And as we walked together, man, I finally looked at him and I said, you know, it's funny, at our church we've been looking at this book called Ecclesiastes in the Bible. He goes, oh, don't talk to me about the Bible. He's kind of an Eastern mystic kind of a person. And I said, well, you know what? He was Eastern. You could could read him. And, And I said, you know what? But that man came to the end of his life. He was like you. He had everything. He tried everything. And the one thing that he learned, though, is that there is a God There is a God that is absolutely in control. He's in control of everything, even to the very end. And really what he's calling us to do is live for him. And he looks back at me and he goes, well, you know, that's nice for you, you know. And, and, but at the very end when we were getting together, I, I, I just gave him my number and I said, you know what? I go, if you ever want to talk about your future, not your past, I would love to sit down and talk with you. And, but he was, yeah. I wish I was that. You know those moments you say something that are smart? You're like, dang. (laughs) That's new for me. Uh, I don't say smart things very often. But what, that's what he's doing. He's, Solomon is just an old man at the end of his life, and he's reflecting on life. And that's what's so good about this book. That's what's been so good about opening it and studying it. Now, to be honest with you, it is a hard, hard book to teach. But once you unpack some of these truths, man, it is an incredible book. Now, but I want to today go to the book of Proverbs real quick before I dive into what I'm going to dive into. And you you can turn there if you want to, to Proverbs 14, 12. But in this particular text, and and especially in the book of Proverbs, what he's doing is is he's writing a letter. And this is Solomon again. Oh, yeah, if you need a a Bible, um, here's here's some Bibles that you can have. If you need one, raise your hand. We do think the Bible is important here. Um, if you need, sorry, I just got back from vacation, so put your seatbelts on. Who knows what's going to happen this morning? 
But the book of Proverbs is Solomon as a younger man writing to his son. In fact, all throughout the book of Proverbs, he's just saying, my son, my son, my son. He's writing to him, and the one thing that he keeps going over and over with him and again and again is this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought not to live. He's he's talking about wisdom and foolishness, and he's laying them out in front of people saying there's, there's two ways in which you can live. I can either live in wisdom or I can live in foolishness. And in it, he talks about things like a harlot. Maybe in our today's world, we don't have maybe the, the people pursuing harlotry. Yeah, there are. But anyway, maybe more of the internet. My son, be careful of those porn sites, he might say to us. His point is, is once you get out there, is that it will suck you in and it will suck you dry and it will leave you with nothing. Stay away from her. Stay away from this. Stay away from that. Go towards this correct thing. Go towards that correct thing. That's what kind of Proverbs he's doing with that one with his son. But one of the key things that he does in is he puts a warning label in 14.12 where he just says there's a way that seems right to man but in the end it only leads to death. Son, I I know that as you're looking at life, there's things that seem so right, but we live in a world that's counterintuitive in many ways. It seems like you ought to go this way, but at the end of it, in fact, he thinks it's so important, he repeats it again in chapter 16. In fact, three other times, he brings back this idea of, son, be careful, there's this way that seems so right, but on the other end of it, son, ah, it's tragedy, destruction. Son, be careful. I know your intuition is telling you one thing. I know your gut is telling you one thing. I know that everything in you is saying you ought to go this way, but son, listen to me. Sometimes our intuition, our gut, the thing we think we ought to do is wrong. Why? It's wrong because back in Genesis 3, from the moment that humanity told God that we no longer want to live under your good leadership, we no longer want your revelation and wisdom, man got messed up. Our intuition got jacked, twisted, skewed, marred. And so he's writing into this and he's telling them that, listen, Once human beings begin to to have this happen, I know, son, that there's this way that seems right, but your intuition, your gut feeling, the thing you think you ought to do, it is twisted and skewed, so you need to be careful. You need to get wisdom into your life is what he says. Now, the way that that oftentimes you'll see this, theologians, philosophers, whoever it is, as they struggle through this particular thing, they ask the question, why do people do it? Now, at the core of it, and I think this is also key to the book of Ecclesiastes, is that everything in your fiber of who you are, you and me, we're always going to pursue the thing that brings us what we think is the most good or the most pleasure. And by the way, that's not a bad thing necessarily. What he's saying, though, is that when everything got skewed and broken, we started to go after the wrong pleasures and the wrong things in the wrong way. In other words, it's not that those pleasures are wrong. In fact, in the book of uh, uh, 1 Timothy, he says, look, God has given us all things to enjoy. So I don't want you to leave here today saying that the way in which we're going to be really spiritual is just to not do pleasurable things. That's not a lie, or that's a lie, because we know at the very end when we stand in glory, we are going to have pleasures forevermore. It's just skewed in how we pursue them now. 
In fact, the word is it's counter to our intuition. It's counterintuitive. We think somehow that those things are going to satisfy us, make us happy, that we're going to find contentment in them. And at the end of it, that's why Solomon says it's habel. It's nothing. It will leave you with little satisfaction. I've rarely met somebody that says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do the thing that brings me the most misery, the most awfulness in my life. That's what I'm going to do. Deep within, even the person that gives his life for Christ does it because he believes it is better to give your life up in this life to gain the treasures forevermore. He does it for pleasure. But it's skewed in this life. Blaise Pascal, he's a, he's a French mathematician, philosopher, theologian. Doesn't that sound like a guy you want to party with? He said, all men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and others avoiding it is the same desire in both, attended with different views. The will never takes the least step but to this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even those who hang themselves. What's he saying? That even the person that kills himself, the man that walks away from his family, the woman that aborts a child and murders it, the reason they do it is they believe it is for their best good. That's why they do it. But everything that we do that we think somehow in there, he says in Proverbs 14, son, be careful. There's a way that seems right, but in the end it leads to destruction. Be careful. Why? Because we're skewed. Let me give you an illustration. While I was on vacation, we went to Palm Springs. Of all places in the summer, my wife thought, I know what we'll do. Let's go to the hottest place on the planet for vacation. I said, wife, what a great idea. She reminded me then that there's golf courses there that I played for like 20, 25 bucks, which anybody knows me, I'm a cheapskate. So I was like, right on. But we were going to go meet my sister out in Palm Desert somewhere. And so like everybody, when you don't know where you are, you grab your iPhone, you go to Google Maps, you type it in, and you get there. So I'm driving along in the desert somewhere, not having a clue where I am. And all of a sudden, we pull in. And as we pull in, we pull into an industrial complex. And the, all of a sudden, I hear this nice lady's voice say, you have arrived at your destination. Your destination's on your right. I'm looking around this industrial complex going, wow, what a weird place for my sister to want to do dinner. So I type it back in, and the lady again looks at it. She says, oh, you have arrived at your destination. It's on the right. I'm looking around going, she's crazy. So I looked over at my wife, and I go, wife, type into your phone. And all of a sudden, the thing says, you are 4.5 miles away from your destination. Now, why did I use that illustration? It's an illustration that within all of us, we think at the end of the day we know where we are, but at the bad end of it, we have an internal navigator that's broken. We have a voice that says you've arrived, and then all of a sudden when we look around at what we've arrived at, it's not there. And what Solomon's going to do, and you can open up to chapter 10, is he's going to talk about this counterintuitive, this, this gut thing that doesn't make any sense at times to go a certain direction, but he wants us to know, and he's going to unpack further this idea of, of, of Proverbs 14, there's this way that seems right to man, but the end leads to destruction. This is what he's now going to unpack for us, and he's going to do it basically with three different things. The first one he's going to talk about is just this idea of appreciating wisdom, avoiding foolishness, and even applying wisdom. I didn't even mean to do all A's, alliterate, but I was so proud of myself when I was done. So let me say them again, just because I was proud of myself. 
appreciate wisdom is the first one. That's the thing we're going to look at first, is that he appreciates wisdom. Second one we're going to look at is this idea of avoiding foolishness. And the third thing we're going to look at is this idea then of applying wisdom or applying it into our lives. Now look down with me at verse 13 in chapter 9. That's where we're going to start. Verse 13 in chapter 9. He says, I've also seen this example of wisdom under the sun. And it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor, wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say to you that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler amongst fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Now inside of your text, and maybe you have a different text than the ESV, you were probably looking down at verse 15, and maybe some of you read it a little bit differently. In verse 15, actually, it could be this idea that he saved the day, but another way of saying it is in, in another text, it's just however poor, but the wise man lived in the city, and he could have delivered the city by his wisdom. Now, kind of, it can go either way in this, but I think it's better to see it that way, that he could have delivered it, but he didn't, because when you get to the end of verse 16, it says they despised and they didn't hear his words. So what's he saying here? He's saying at the end of it, that this poor man, that he was going to go out, whether it was through diplomacy or military strategy, he could have saved the day, but because no one listened to him, because nobody heard his words, I believe at the end of it, this city was destroyed. They could have been saved. He's referencing this idea of wisdom, and he's caught up in it. You can tell he's like, this old dude could have saved it, but think about this. I think that the reason that they didn't listen to him because he was a poor old man. They probably looked around at the great generals, the ones that had been around that were rich and they had many things, the strong men. They thought, this is what we'll do. We'll send these ones that are rich and powerful, the ones that are strong, we'll send them out against them. But in the back was this old wise man who could have saved the day. He's saying there's a wisdom out there, just like wisdom. It seems so counterintuitive, but at the end of the day, he's going to give us kind of three different things that are going to lay out, the things that he appreciates about it. Here's the first one, is that godly wisdom is greater than might. Look down in verse 16 at the very beginning. He just says, wisdom is greater than strength. Now, there's an illustration that I found this week. There's this strong man on a construction site. And he would always go around boasting to the different guys of how strong he was and he could do different things better than anybody else. He could do any feat of strength. And he made a special case one day of pointing out this older man. And he looked at this older man and he said, you know what, old man, I bet you used to have a day that you could have done things like me. The old man was eating his lunch and he looks over at him and he goes, young man, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? young man looked back at him and said, what? The old man says, I'll bet you a week's pay that I can lift something. And I can not only lift it, but in that particular wheelbarrow over there, I will put it in that wheelbarrow and haul it over, and you won't be able to wheel it back. The young dude looks at him and goes, you kidding me? You're on, old timer. At that particular point, the man went over and he grabbed the wheelbarrow, walked over to that man, and he said, Okay, 
climb in. <laughs> You'll catch it in a second. Because he can't wheel himself back. Why? Because wisdom is greater than strength. Yes, it's just a story. It's not real. Because we live in a fallen world, we oftentimes think that the way that we're going to do this is through power, control. These are the means of our rescue. We think, man, if I just have just enough money, if, if I had just the right job, if I just had just the right people in government, if I, had, if, I, if I just don't have to forgive my spouse, and somehow at the end of it I think, then I'll have control, then I'll be able to hold things, manipulate things, do things. And the Bible constantly says to us, you are relying on the wrong thing. King David. David, Solomon's father, said some people rely on chariots, some people rely on horses, but oh, these people that quit relying upon that, and instead they rely upon the name of the Lord. He just says in there, you're relying on the wrong thing. Wisdom is greater than strength. It's counterintuitive to our fallen minds. It, it doesn't make any sense, but Solomon, looking back, goes, isn't it incredible? Wisdom is greater than strength. But not only does he see that, in verse 16 he goes on. Look down at verse 16 at the, at the, towards the very end of it. He says in there, Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler amongst fools. So if the first one is, is that wisdom is greater than strength, our biggest problem is, is that people don't listen to wisdom. In other words, there's this voice inside of my head that's telling me, do this, do this, do this, and it begins to drown out, actually, wisdom. You'll see this all the time, especially in this particular situation when things get tough. When things get tough, we tend to lose our head. You're supposed to fill that blank in. Head. There we go. We tend to lose our heads. He's saying to them, that's what tends to happen. We miss what God is doing. Now go with me back to Proverbs 1. Keep your finger in there and go back to Proverbs 1. He's going he's to kind of give us a little idea of how this particular thing happens. Proverbs 1 and look at verse 20. Not only is wisdom greater than strength, but he wants us to know that wisdom by nature, people tend not to listen to. Look at verse 20. It just says, Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. She says, How long, O simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? If you turn at my reproof, Behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you because I have called and you refuse to listen and have stretched out my hand and no one is heeded because you've ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof. I will laugh at you at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you, when terror strikes you like a storm, when calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I won't answer. If the first one is, is that wisdom is greater than strength, I believe the next one is, is that the reason we miss wisdom is because we don't apply it before times get bad. Have you ever noticed everybody suddenly wants to go to God when things go wrong? 
They get there and they sit there all confused at what to do. But in the middle of all this, I think what he's saying is, is that wisdom is always crying out to us, wanting to be heard. But then when all of a sudden, Proverbs 14, we make a choice, this way that seems right to man, and we enter into our calamity, we no longer hear wisdom because we haven't been taking wisdom in. We haven't made it a part of our lives. I'd say within our culture, one of the main reasons is these two little things called the internet and television. Holy cow, those things drown our life. Here's a statistic I found. The average American kid spends 1,680 minutes watching television or online every week. <laughs> Let me see that number again. 1,680? They spend less than one hour a week with their parent in meaningful conversation. The average adult, who knows how long we spend online. I'll sit there with my phone and I'm sitting there waiting for somebody. Has anybody spent like about 30 minutes online and all of a sudden you say, where does your time go? In the midst of that, we're drowning ourselves. And I would even say this, there's all these people that say, well, I just mainly watch the news. That's what I do. As if somehow MSNBC, CNN, or Fox News is a good thing. Those people all out there, they're just like you. They don't know anything. Not Fox News. <laughs> they're always right. No, they're not. We drown ourselves in information. And then all of a sudden when calamity hits, Bill O'Reilly is not there to be found to help you. For those of you younger, Bill O'Reilly is an old man that yells a lot on TV. <laughs> it goes unheeded. Why? Because we're a product of our desires and our desires lead to habits and our habits are all wrong and therefore when the old proverbial poo-poo hits the fan, it is not to be heard. We can't hear it. We don't hear it because we don't spend time in it. But not only that, when you look down at verse 18, is that when that happens, wisdom, he says, is better than weapons of war. In other words, it's greater than strength. But one, one sinner destroys much good, he says. As effective as it is, one turn to the left can cause massive problems. One apple ruins the entire barrel. All throughout the Bible, it just says these statements, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this is why he's so looking at it going, we have got to be careful. Son, son, listen to me. There's this way that seems right to a man. It's counterintuitive. You think you should go this particular way, but son, don't go there because one wrong decision leads to two and three and four and five. And all of a sudden, son, you'll be sitting there at the end of it going, what happened to my life? And I think this is what Solomon's starting to get us to because now he's going to get it from this idea that somehow we should, we should go after wisdom, we should appreciate wisdom. And then starting in verse one, he's going to start to talk about then. So then we should avoid foolishness. Look at Verse 1, it says, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Now, in the midst of this passage, he's going to be talking about wisdom, but he's going to bring up a particular word starting in chapter 10. It's going to be this word fool. He's going to use it nine different times. By the way, whenever you're studying the Bible and you see something nine different times, you should go, ha, a clue. Now, in the book of Proverbs, in the book of Ecclesiastes, in the book of Song of Solomon, this word fool, fools, foolish, folly, it comes up 128 times. 
He's trying to get our attention on it. And so this whole chapter is now going to be full of this Proverbs that are going to talk about the difference between wisdom and foolishness. Now when he talks about verse 1, this idea of one dead fly, what he's trying to do is he's grabbing one little thing, a little fly that's dead, this insignificant insect, and he's comparing it over here to this fragrance of this perfume. Overall, he's saying between the two of them, this one is so much greater, and it took so much more time and effort and energy to put together, and yet this one insignificant insect, this nasty creature, can destroy this whole thing. He's trying to get, he's going to help us understand this idea of foolishness. Does you understand that one thing can spoil it all? Just one bad decision. He's trying to get our attention in this. Now, it could be that he's talking about our character. In other words, there's this one fault unchecked, a secret sin maybe, that poisons our character. Maybe it's just a bad attitude, a bad habit, a tendency towards being irresponsible. Maybe you just think these things, I wrote these down. It's just a little thing. It's just who I am. It's just a little relationship, a little flirtation at the office. It's just a little bit of a bad, uh, a, a bad attitude while I'm at work. It's just a little bit of kind of padding my expense account at work. It's just a little bit of trying the wrong things that I'm supposed to. His point is, is that once you go down that path, there's this point at which now the only end is going to be your destruction. See, I think in a church this size, I'm just looking around at my own life, because by the way, this has been massively convicting to me. You know those little things that we tend to ignore? Those little things that we think don't matter? Those little things that we think are insignificant? Or we'll hear people say, well, that's just the way Todd is. That's just the way she is. It's just this little thing. It's just a little bit here and a little bit there. His point is, is that when that fly gets in there, it now begins to corrupt because I think it also could be a person. It's one, this one person who comes in that puts the wet blanket on everybody because they're negative. It's this one person that super critically and single-handedly destroys everybody in there. The question that I think he's asking is, am I the fly in the perfume? Do I have a fly in the perfume? Because now as he begins to unpack it, watch what he's going to say in verse 2. If it's in there, his point is, eventually it's going to come out in our lives. Look at verse 2 where he says this. He says, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Now some of you are sitting there going, see, I told you Fox News was okay. It's to the right. God is not a Republican. God is not a Democrat. He's a theocrat. He is king of kings and lord of lords. He is a benevolent dictator. That's not what he's talking about here. When it talks about this idea that once the fly is in the ointment, the idea is, is that we will go one way or the other. The person that goes to their right in this particular case, and especially in the Old Testament, was always a place of favor, skill, strength, blessing. In other words, to the right was that, but to the left was always a place of weakness, meaning that when the fly lands in the ointment, it's always going to go to either a place of strength or it's going to go to a place of weakness. It's going to happen. If you're somebody right now that's coddling sin, let me just say this to you. It will push you a direction. 
Today is the best day to deal with that little sin that you've been lying about and hiding. Because eventually his point is, is it's going to come to the surface. This idea of left-handed, you'll kind of hear this. Everybody remember Princess Bride? Do you remember that? This idea of left? And they're both sword fighting with their left, and then all of a sudden, what do they do? I'm not left-handed. I'm actually what? Because the left hand was always considered the place of weakness. If you're left-handed, please don't be offended. His point is, though, it's always going to lead that way. Now look at verse 3 when he talks about it. Not only will it lead there, but he says, but even when the fool walks on the road, and the idea of a road is just his way, the way in which he lives his life, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he's a fool. Eventually, in other words, you're found out. Sin comes to the surface in who we are. It is going to come out of our lives. It's going to come to the surface. It's going to in some way manifest itself. And what he's going to do then in the rest of this kind of first section, starting in verse 4, is he's going to give us a positive illustration of how this comes out, and then he's going to give us a negative illustration. The first positive illustration is found in in verse 4 when he says this, If the anger of a ruler rises against you, do not leave your place. A better word for that is is probably not do not leave your place, but do not resign your position. In other words, don't quit your job. For calmness will a great offense to the rest. He's just saying now there's a right way and a left way. There's a way of strength. And he says this way of strength over here is when calamity hits. I think the idea is, is there are people that keep their head, that keep their cool, that maintain their composure. That's wisdom, he says. When your boss gets angry at you, let it go. He says, when another person's actions come against you, don't let it determine your reaction. The person that's walking in wisdom lives in such a way that when it comes to the surface, when this happens, they keep their cool. In fact, his point being in there is you never know, you might get a hearing from that particular one. That little phrase, again, that's in there, that idea of don't leave your place, don't resign your position, I think this is important. Please listen to me, because I'm always dealing with this with people in counseling. Listen to me. Over and over, I'll have people come in and say, I think I'm going to quit my job. Why? Because it's hard. That's one thing you could do. But Solomon would look back at you and say, don't quit. Now, why would he say that? Why in the world would he say that? Number one is this. Because no matter where you go, people are there, including you, and it's just hard wherever you go. The grass is not always greener is the first one. The second one is that I get that it would be so much easier to not have certain people in your life. Trust me, I've thought that many times. But because of them, we're forced to grow in areas that we wouldn't in other ways. And inside of you is your intuition saying, run, get out of the problem. And James 1 is saying, brother, consider it all joys when you experience many trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect work, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Stand. I see it in marriage. I'm going to leave because my husband is a slob. For all of you women in here that have ever said that, so is every other man on the planet. <laughs> I'm an equal opportunity offender. 
I'm going to leave my wife because she's just a nag. I'll end there. person that goes to the right, the one that's in wisdom, the one that's in strength, stays in. To the left, however, he's going to give an example of weakness, starting in verse 5. This one that goes to the left, this one that's a Democrat. I'm just kidding. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. What in the world is Solomon saying? His point is, is that when we go to the left, we have a tendency to appreciate more folly. We appreciate those that are fools just like us. So in other words, he said, I've seen it where people have elevated fools to these places and denigrated people to these low places. Now, I would say this happens around us every single day, and I just have to say two names to give us to this point. Anytime a society gets to foolishness, they begin to laud fools. Caitlyn Jenner, Donald Trump, okay? Now, I'm going to vote for Donald. Now, with due all due respect to these people, it's just showing us something. A society that becomes foolish begins to laud the fool. Those are the people that we place in positions of high places. We begin to think that those people are the people that we're supposed to follow. Remember back in about 100 years ago, the people that actually used to be respected were like doctors and scientists. Even, did you know this, that before the turn of the century in the 1900s, one of the most respected group of people were lawyers and pastors? Why? Because our culture has begun to laud the fool. These ones that go to the left, they begin to laud that. They begin to lift that up. So the first case now he's going to say is we need to appreciate wisdom. We need to avoid foolishness. But now in verse 8, he's going to talk to us now about this idea. But now we have to apply wisdom. We have to make it real. We have to, we have to take wisdom, which is just skill for living. And we can't just be book smart. We've got to make it real in our lives. Now, what he's going to do is now talk about this idea of wisdom under the terms of self-control. When wisdom lands into our lives, we become self-controlled. Look at verse 8. He's going to lay out this first one of self-control. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. Don't you love these, these uh, Proverbs. He who quarries stone is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. What's he saying? He's saying before you do something, just stop and think. Sound like a name for a good video. Stop and think. I'm always telling my son this. I asked him, you know, the dumb question parents ask, why did you do that? The dumbest question any parent can ask their kid, why did you do it? And we're always talking about this idea of stopping and thinking. Think before you act. 
The person who is wise, the natural thing that comes to it is they might have all kinds of energy. They might have gusto. They might have perseverance. But before they dig a massive pit, they're going to stay away at the edge in case they might fall in. If they're an excavator, they're going to be careful which rock they remove because they might reach through one particular rock and there's a rattlesnake on the other side of it. If you're cutting a tree, same advice holds true. Don't stand where it's going to fall. If you have enough wisdom to sharpen your axe, do you understand you're going to get through there? In other words, this idea of wisdom is is it allows us to have a self-control that causes us to stop and think. The wisest people within Christianity are the ones that stop and think. But we live in such a fast-paced culture, don't we? There's no time to think. I was traveling just recently, man, and you know how LAX is? Golly! You get there and it's like... And you become that. You're like, and so I'm on the plane, you know, and I'm talking to people. You know, it's just like, gosh. I got off at the airport I had, I was going to be at, man, it was kind of in the middle of nowhere, and I'm still, and all the people there are like, why? Living in a place like LA, we just don't stop. There's this reality that's part of Christians. Be still and know I'm God. He doesn't say hurry up and know I'm God. He says be still. Not only that, when you look at verse 11, he says those that don't stop and think, but also I would add this to it, those that then don't apply the wisdom that they have. He says if the snake should bite before it's charmed, uh, charmed the snake charmer is in trouble. It looks like kind of a random thought, but you've seen her like a snake charmer on a movie or maybe in a, in a cartoon, but the, the idea was is this one that has the skill to charm this particular snake. Solomon's point is that you have to actually use wisdom. In other words, when I stop and think then, I'm thinking and applying what is good wisdom into life. In other words, I've seen so many Christians that they know the right things to do. They know wonderful principles on parenting. They know wonderful principles on money and marriage and management and sexuality and friendships and work. They know all these different things. We know it all, but do we actually apply it into life? That's what he's asking here. You know the right answers, but our churches are filled with Bible-believing people that that have wrecked their lives because they've been bitten by the proverbial snake. They didn't apply wisdom into it. The idea is not only that I stop, but then I think on how I'm supposed to apply it in there, which is, I think, what becomes interesting in the next one, verse 12. He's now going to talk about self-control, not in regards to patience, but in regards to words. Look at verse 12. He just says, look, the words of a wise person win in favor. The words of a fool are destructive. At the beginning of his words are foolish, and at the end is this wicked madness, yet a fool keeps on babbling. No one knows what will happen. Who can tell him what will happen in the future? The toil of a stupid fool wears him out because he does not even know the way to the city. In other words, wise people don't talk too much. Now, I wanted to say this to my youngest daughter the other day when we were in the van. Dad this, dad that, and I almost said, honey, let me teach you about wisdom. Wisdom is, I didn't, don't worry, I didn't do it. But think about the benefits of this. The first one I have is, is you run a much a lower risk of actually saying something stupid. I don't know who said it, Mark Twain or Abe Lincoln, but he just said this, it's better to, it's better to keep your mouth shut and to be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. 
You can listen to what others are saying. In other words, when those that are slow to speak and quick to listen, they're also slow to anger. You have time to frame your thoughts. Look at the very end of verse 15. He doesn't know what the weight of the city. In other words, you haven't even thought about life. Your companions will begin to value your words. You become a value to the people that are around you. But not only is it self-control in our, our patience and self-control in our words, but look at verse 16. He's going to say this one that goes to the right, this one that now pursues wisdom and has strength, he says, verse 16, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and the princes feast at the proper time for strength, not for drunkenness. What's he saying? We have self-control then around food or drink. I've always found that the one who can control their base appetites like food or drink can control every aspect of their life. I was thinking about this the other day, and I read a quote from a guy. He said this, The problem with Americans is that we live to eat instead of eat to live. We can't control our appetites. We're going to the left. We're affected by, by this. And in fact, he's talking about leaders in this particular standpoint, is that leaders have an, an application upon their families, upon on everyone. I would say this, this leadership principle applies just as much to the White House as to your house. He's talking about this idea of, that in this, are you having self-control over just these appetites in your life? And he's saying to us that wisdom grabs a hold of this. And you'll see what happens when he doesn't do this. Verse 18, he goes on, he says, look, because of laziness, the roof caves in, and because of idle hands, the house leaks. The idea is a guy sitting in his boxers, and as he sits in his boxers with a beer in his hand, watching television, everything is falling apart. And let me just speak to the dads in here, just real quickly, look at me. If you were to assess your family, are you the dude sitting on your couch drinking the beer watching TV while your family falls apart? He's saying this one controls his appetites in all things. He's the one that comes in and, and he, instead of having a beer belly that keeps getting larger, the bills that keep stacking up, is that this one comes into there because he's not in the way of the fool and he begins to now bring this self-control into everything that he does because leaders always eat last. And it doesn't guarantee success, I would say, but it, it can cause it if you don't do it. He even says this statement 19, feasts are made for laughter, wine for merry, but money saves everything. After a while, you just sit there and go, I know what I'll do. Is that somehow at the end of the day, this is what's going to fix it. But it's not only now patience, this idea of self-control with patience and self-control with words and self-control with food or drink. But the next one he's going to talk about is self-control in our mind. Look at verse, uh, at verse 20. This one who goes to the right he says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of, all of the air will carry your voice, and some winged creature will tell the matter. He's just saying in there, be careful how you even think. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said this statement, the man who, who, who has hate in his heart has actually committed what? Murder. The one who has lust in the heart has actually committed what? In other words, the self-control also comes into our thoughts thinking. Now the greatest news for us in this is when wisdom begins to grab our lives, he's pulling all this together to help us to understand, now we can begin to live the life that God has called us to live. See, I think within not only the church in the United States, I just think we need this. 
We need the wisdom that can only God can provide. Why? Because we live in a world that has all these things telling us to go this way and that way and do this and do that. I sit and I listen to even Christians on the radio talk about our money and our things we ought to do, and it doesn't resonate at all with Scripture. Solomon's coming in and saying, I get that it is counterintuitive to live this way. I get that it doesn't make sense. But my son, or in this case, at the end of his life, he's saying, listen to me. I need this wisdom more than anything else. Now, some of you might not be believers in here. Let me just say this to you. In the book of Psalms, it talks about the idea that the fool says in his heart, there is no God. There's a lot of you in here, I really believe this, that don't know Jesus, maybe not a lot, some of you in here that don't know Jesus, you're going to stand before God one day and you are going to feel like the greatest fool on the planet. So often we look at Christians, and even sometimes I've felt this way, I don't know if anybody's ever felt this way before and thought, oh my gosh, if this thing's not true, I'm a pastor, that means I'm the biggest fool on the planet. But I promise you, one day when we stand before God, he is no fool who follows Jesus Christ with everything that he is. Those people then that give their life for Jesus Christ. See, I think this is what he's starting to kind of rev up in what he's trying to do. And I think even what the New Testament picks up on. For all of you in here that follow Jesus Christ, I believe for all of us, it's time to not play games. Isn't there just this little part of you that just wants to live radically for Jesus? You do because you know that the day you stand in front of Jesus, you will be no fool. You will be the wise one. The fools will be the ones that didn't give up, that chose to live lives for themselves instead of to live, Christ, live, live for Christ. I want to be involved in a church that begins to look at our money and our marriages and our things and everything that we are. I want to laud the man that goes out there and takes a different job, not because he's trying to get away from his boss, because he wants more time for his family and his church. I want to laud that particular high schooler that goes out and in the midst of high school when it's so uncool to live that way, I want to be able to look at them and say, that is how you're supposed to follow. I want to look at the spouse that thinks I'm going to walk away from my husband or my wife because they've committed some type of a adultery they've cheated on me and instead says God I'm going to stick in there I want to have people inside of this church that while the world tells us to go one way we go the other that's wisdom and I get how counterintuitive it is but when all of us are standing in front of Jesus one day I want to be counterintuitive it's no games I want people that want to have pleasure in the correct way now, if you're somebody in here, let me just tell you, you don't have to find wisdom. You have to find Christ. And when you find Christ, wisdom will find you. Colossians 2 says, in him, in him that all the wisdom, the treasures of wisdom is found. For those of you that are followers of Jesus Christ, we say, well, how do I find wisdom? James 1 says, first off, you're supposed to what? Ask. Come to God. Ask. Dive in. Chris challenges to read the book of Ecclesiastes. How's that going? Get around God's people. Pursue wisdom for everything that you are. But finally, let me say to those of you that are in here that are Christians, you don't have to find wisdom either. You have to find Christ. And when you find Christ, wisdom will find you. Amen? Okay. Last thing. I am so glad to be back to this church. I Now listen, just, just, just a second. 
I've sat through a couple churches and God bless them, I love them. I have been a fool in not telling you this. This church is an amazing church. I look around at some of you in here, and this is where I need to confess my sin. I love that this is the church I get to shepherd. I look at so many of you that you are living in wisdom, you are pursuing God, and all the band can go ahead and come on up. I'm just now being pastoral. But listen to me. From the bottom of my heart, I love you guys. But listen to me. I don't want to play games. I want us to take this and follow Jesus Christ with greater passion than we ever have before. I want those of you in here that have sin that you need to deal with to be the day that you deal with. Remember we sang the song, Good, Good Father? He wants to deal with your sin. I want those of you in here that want to be better dads and better moms. The greatest news in the world is you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You can be that mom or dad, the exact mom or dad your kids need you for. And trust me, even that may cause your kids to still turn out bad. There's no hope in that. I just want to follow Jesus radically. But I'm not now going to give us the five-point plan that we're going to passionately, radically pursue to love Jesus Christ more. I'm going to look at all of you and say, this week, be still and know He's God. You don't have to find all those things. You need to find God, and when you find God, all those things find you. Amen? Jesus, please help us today, tomorrow, and the days after to live passionately for you in your precious name. Amen.